This is a story about a mother robbed of the opportunity to see her children and grandchildren grow up. It's the chronicle of an alleged con man capable of exploiting the basic human desire for companionship and love. But it's also a tale of two daughters whose lives might have been immeasurably changed by the crossing of their parents' paths. Over the last few days, I've also been talking to Rick Bloom's daughter from his third marriage. When he was giving evidence, Rick Bloom said that he had only ever met this daughter once when she was a baby and that he'd never spoken to her. But in our long discussions over the last few days, she has told me that she actually reconnected with Rick Bloom, her biological father, when she was an adult. She said it just turned out to be horrible. This was a man, she said, that talked a lot about killing in various forms. She said that he told her a specific method of how to poison people so that you could kill them without leaving a trace. At the other end of the spectrum, Sally Layden, Marion Barter's daughter, is desperate for answers about what happened to her mum more than a quarter of a century ago. It's been a big journey to get to this point. We're still digging. Haven't given up yet. Sally has been an unstoppable force in the search for her mother. None of this would have happened without her. She has basically put her life, I think, on hold in many respects to get to the bottom of this. She has basically started with almost nothing back in 2019. She had maybe followers in the hundreds on the Marion Barter's missing Facebook page. That's past 20,000 people. This has a huge amount of public support behind this campaign to find out what happened to Marion Barter. As inquest, amateur sleuthing and true crime fandom converge, those answers don't feel as far away as they once did. But not before one last twist in this 25-year mystery. The state coroner was due to hand down her findings on November 30 last year. Then all of a sudden, just 48 hours before she was to do that, Sally Laid and Marion's daughter was told this is going on hold pending further investigations. Marion Barter's daughter, Sally Layden, has been waiting 24 years for answers. If a few more months can help, she's not going to argue. Well, if they feel that they have more things to investigate, obviously that is something that I want um, to happen. And you've had eyes on this case for quite a few years now, as you said. Do you think we'll ever know what happened to her? Well, there is every chance that that can be solved. Absolutely. All of these people who are working towards that goal, they have found some incredible things and who knows what they might find next. They want anyone with information about Rick Bloom who uses all of these aliases, Frederick de Hedeberry, Willie Wooters, there are so many. They want anyone who knows him to come forward because they do believe that there are perhaps a lot of people out there who do have information that might not know about this story yet or that might have been reluctant to come forward. We just don't know how deep and how dark this story goes yet. I've been covering the disappearance of people pretty much my whole career, going back more than 25 years now, and it has changed so much over that time. Back then you would write a story, it would go in the paper, you would get some reaction, but now these stories have been covered in incredible detail and people now can get involved and lend their skills. They don't have to be trained investigators. There are some people with amazing research skills out there who are discovering remarkable things. And I think that these true crime podcasts are bringing out witnesses, but they're also bringing out these 
talented amateur investigators who I think can actually help solve some of these cold cases and I guess bring some sort of resolution to the families who are just desperate for answers, like Sally about her mum, Marion. David Murray is the Australian's national crime correspondent. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. And once more, I'm joined by my very special guest from Australia, Joni Condos. Hello, everybody. We're just waking up here in Australia, but yes, I'm look very much looking forward to this conversation. And thank you very much for again covering this, Laura. Oh, it's thank my you. pleasure, and I really appreciate you giving me so much of your time as well, Joni. And just looking at the Facebook responses, people are really interested in our conversations, and I'm so pleased that people are learning new things from our discussion as we go along. And the engagement is incredible, actually, on the Facebook page, Missing Person Marion Barter, and you do a fantastic job, all of you, in terms of the, you know, responding to people because lots of people have ideas and thoughts and so on. Um, so we want to keep that engagement going. We want to hear from people, share your thoughts and ideas, and it it really is tremendous support for Sally and, and family as well, isn't it? That has been such a huge surprise. So I guess when the podcast first came out in 2019 till now, a real genuine community has been built. And that is primarily due to Sally and her absolute openness and willingness to share her story, to basically open her doors. So share her own story to the world. So it's amazing. The lengths that people have gone to to support is just something I've not seen before. Well, including yourself. I mean, you've given up four years of your life, in essence, of tracking the case and following up leads. And next year, you're going to go traveling with Sally. And, you know, for me, this is the best of the true crime community. This really does exemplify the best of the true crime world when we know that lots of cases get sensationalized and the perpetrator can get sensationalized and people can focus on the wrong things and actually can be quite victim blaming cruel. And actually what we see with Marion's case is just this incredible sense of goodwill and people all around the world trying to help. And people are genuinely invested and really want to help find out what happened to Marion Barter. I, I think because we all know it could be any one of us as well, right? I mean, it could be any one of our mums or any one of us that could go missing. And Sally's just been in earnest asking all the right questions and has met with so many doors closed in her face. And what you've all done in the community have been opening all those doors. And it's just so fantastic to see. So thank you so much for all your support. And yes, Sally is a fantastic woman. There's no two ways about that. She's a warrior. She truly is a warrior. Yes, yes. And I think probably like a lot does go on behind the scenes that is, we do have our trolls, we have the people that sort of make stuff up and send it to us saying that it's fact. We have people doctoring documents. We have all sorts of things happen over the years. I mean, there is certainly that that goes on, but we try our best to just put, you know, once we've verified, not verified, we just put that to the side and we don't sort of go on about it too much. 
we more focus on the people that really want to help and the ones, yeah, that want to push the case forward. But yeah, it certainly hasn't been without its challenges in that way too. It's not all rainbows and unicorns, (laughs) that's for sure. I'm aware of that because Sally has told me about a few people who, you know, have messaged her and talk as if Marion's not her mother and, you know, can be quite callous in, in their discussion. And, and I think that does go on. So I guess it's also just a nod to people. If you are jumping on the Facebook page for the first time, please be respectful and thoughtful in the things that you say, because it really does matter. It's real people. And Sally, you know, this is a real roller coaster of a journey, isn't it? We've now got a date set of February the 29th, 2024, for the coroner, Teresa O'Sullivan, to hand down her final. So Sally's had to wait for such a long time and I just, well, we'll get to the coroner maybe at the end of this episode of and, and say a little bit more about that. But it's good that a date has finally been set at least. Yes, definitely. It's been a very long wait. Let's jump into some other things that we haven't discussed yet before I get to when, when we left off, when we last spoke, Joni, in one of our marathon sessions I mentioned about my circumstantial evidence and the points that, you know, the facts that I've been counting, which is what I do when I'm working on a case. And when I spoke to Alison Sandy at The Lady Vanishes, I think I was at about 14. And since our conversation, it really has expanded based on the detail of me speaking with Sally and speaking with you. And actually, it's now 40. And I would like, we talked wow. about yeah, it's it's a lot actually for one case. And we talked about going through those so that you and I can discuss them. We haven't talked about them previously. And so my listeners can also hear them. And of course, I'm sure Sally will, will hear them too. And I hope that the coroner listens to them. So we will go through the detail and you can add to it should there be any other points, because this is a complex and complicated case. Let's think about then the circumstantial evidence Because for me, and we've already been tiptoeing into it, the circumstantial evidence does point in one direction. And and I've said that before. When I do my work, I look at the circumstantial evidence. Of course, you look at direct physical evidence as well. And I will just caveat it by saying circumstantial evidence is just as significant as direct physical evidence. And I've worked on many cases where it's like building a house, right? You've got to put the foundation in and you're literally showing through the circumstantial evidence that actually there's nobody else who it could possibly be who disappeared Marion or who had means, motive and opportunity to. And so for me, when I think about means, motive and opportunity, it goes back to Rick Blum because he put himself on Marion's timeline and we're going to talk about the timeline. He lied to the police and he changed his story. And I believe that he was the last person to see Marion alive. And I'll explain a little bit more. So the circumstantial evidence now has, for me, has 40 points. And I group things loosely, thematically. And thematically, I'm talking about victimology, the timeline, the geography, other women's accounts, and also what might be called coincidences, but behaviour and deception. And with deception, I look at how Rick Bloom lies, when he lies and how he lies. And that's quite important when you've got someone who is a prolific and pathological liar. There are some times where he oversells and overextends. And I'm going to explain that in a bit more detail. So 
we'll go through the points and you can weigh in after each one. So the first one, I start with victimology in, in my report. And I explain that Marion was 51 years old. The things that we've talked about before, an award-winning teacher, she suddenly changes her whole life. And it's on an accelerated timeline. And the accelerated timeline is important. She secretly changed her name to Florabella Natalia Marion Remical. So a very unusual name change, but she does it in secret. She sells her house at a loss. So that tells me she's in a rush, resigns from her school in the middle of the year, leaving her children when everyone says that's very uncharacteristic of Marion. Sally told me that. And she gives away her worldly possessions and she books a trip of a lifetime to go away for a year. But she, for all intents purposes, said to Sally that she'll be back for her wedding. So there's a time that she plans for coming back. There's future planning. But the acting secretively, the behavioural change, that's significant. And it indicated to me when I first spoke to Alison Sandy, after you mentioned that she should, I said it's significant that that happened on that timeline and it was my belief someone someone was influencing her. So that's the, the first point about victimology. And it gets extended when we look at the other women, when we think about Monique and Jeanette and Janet and Ghislaine and Andre and Charlotte. We then have another set of attributes, characteristics to look at when we look at those women and compare them to Marion. And for me, there's saliency there. There's salient features about victimology. So this is before... We even get to Rick Bloom. This is just a victimology point. The timeline that comes in with that is, having said that Marion, I believe she was being influenced by someone, whoever it was, I believe would be appearing on the timeline four to six months before this behavioural change, before she starts acting secretively, that whoever that person was, they would be significant to precipitate all this behavioural change. So point number three is there was a key event on Marion's timeline, and that was that Marion was packing up the house with the help of Chris, Sally's husband. And she suddenly, or it might have been fiancé at that time because they weren't married, but Sally's partner. And Marion suddenly stops and she changes demeanour and she ushers Chris out. And he found it quite rude, which was, again, uncharacteristic of Marion. So that tells me there's an urgency as to why she wants him out of the house. What's important, she sends him on his way, is that Sally and Chris then see Marion at McDonald's with a man in the car, a tall man. And for me, it's not just the sighting of that tall man. So we know there's a tall man on the timeline and with Marion, who she's not telling them about. But it's also the point of fact where there's been an appeal, that man has not come forward. And we talked about that, didn't we? The fact Normally you do an appeal, you want the person to come forward. Now, for me, it's significant that he never did. And I think he never did. Well, we'll get on to that. We did discuss it before, but all these, they're like threads that you you start to pull together. So Rick Bloom is point number four. He puts himself on Marion's timeline and he's forced to answer questions by the police in June 2021. Five is that he initially tells New South Wales Police that he doesn't know missing person Marion Barter. It's a missing person inquiry and they make that clear to him, but he says he doesn't know her. The next day, this is point number six with Rick Bloom, is that he changes his story, says that he does know Marion. So we talked about this before, any sudden departure from a very important, I don't know her to actually, I do know her. He's lying, but why lie? Why would you lie? 
in that scenario. He then later says that he had a relationship with Marion, but he didn't tell the police that. And when he's questioned about why he didn't tell the police, I believe he lied again and he said they never asked him. I mean, police work can be sloppy at times, but when it's an inquiry about a missing person, that is your central point of focus. And he knew that, which is why he lied. So one thing informs the other that to then say at the coroner's inquest, well, they never asked me, it's, it's just fanciful. So again, we've got a number of consecutive lies. He changes his story again. This is point number seven, that whereas before he admitted to when people were saying it was a sexual relationship and he did admit to having a relationship with her, he then distanced himself from that and he said it wasn't a relationship, it was just sex. So you've got him distancing out of that. And that, for me, again, is significant. And I remember at the coroner's inquest, there was that whole back and forth that he wouldn't answer the question because it, in his account, it wasn't a relationship. And he kept bumping on that. And what's more, he said that he broke it off, telling Marion about his wife and children before she left on a trip. So again, you've got this distancing. He's walking himself back from what he's already admitted to. That is about creating distance. Why do you do that if you have nothing to hide? And some people might say, well, it's the relationship, right? He's trying to hide. But I don't believe that to be true because of the lies. Yeah. I want to tell you about my sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy eating easy. And health and fitness starts with good food. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Fuel up fast with Factors, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. I've had the chicken parmesan and the turkey chili and zucchini, and they're delicious and I highly recommend them. Factor is flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Now, they've done the maths, and Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 and use code crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. That's code crimeanalyst50 at factormills, F-A-C-T-O-R, factormills.com slash crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. In addition to that too, just also putting men putting other males forward within that time frame too. Well, I'm going to get to that. stepping ahead yeah. on your list. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what, yes, okay. <laughs> that's, that's actually the next point. The creating distance, and I think I said that to you when we last spoke, you know, out of all the witnesses, you've got him now having admitted, having lied, then admitting the relationship, then changing the story again if it wasn't a relationship. You've then got him saying that he broke up with her and it was just sex, right, a number of times. But then he proceeds to offer up multiple mystery men. It's actually excessive when I went through all the detail of, well, how many? And you sent me a, a helpful document as well. I'd already started listing them out. How many points? And I'm sure there, there are more. But 
What he told the police was that she was pretty available to anyone and he called her a teaser. And he said that she was running around with lots of men. So this kind of generalisation, lots of men, there's nothing really specific. But then he does go into some men from her school, parents of the children, Korean male teachers, a pilot, a Navy officer, a Moroccan male or an Algerian male. Numerous men, he said, that was confirmed by her sister, He also said that she was having an affair with her gardener and a mysterious man on a motorbike. So this is excessive in my opinion. I don't think I've ever worked a case where someone has put up so many other potential mystery people from somebody who apparently what he's saying is he doesn't really know her. He's just had sex a couple of times, but yet he now offers up all these other men and it's all very vague stuff. I mean, it's my belief the purpose is to make Marion, well, it's to create distance, but also make Marion seem promiscuous and to devalue her and belittle her and discredit her and play on the misogynistic trope, you know, of women being promiscuous, but to muddy the waters as well and to distract so that it sends people off in another direction, right, to ask more questions about this mysterious man on the motorcycle. But Why do this? Why do this if you have nothing to hide? Exactly. That's exactly right. So then you've got the, you know, when he's asked about his relationship with Marion, some of the things that he said, well, she's a sex maniac and are just, well, she just, well, after within 10 minutes, she said she wanted sex and that's all the relationship was. So again, this devaluing, sexually promiscuous, and making her out to be a certain way at a coroner's inquest where her family are present, which shows a callous disregard and a lack of compassion. I'm going to talk about that later on. But it takes a special kind of person to do that, to talk about someone in such a devaluing way. And you and I have had a conversation about the fact that Marion, when she was seeing her doctor, she did talk about having a low libido. So if that's accurate, she did. then it fights what he has said at the coroner's inquest. But of course, Marion's not here to defend herself. And of course, we did hear him talk about Andre Flum and say a number of things about her being in a wheelchair, having dementia, discrediting her. And then we hear evidence from Andre Flum and it's very clear she does not suffer from any of those things. But it's the fact he tries to devalue her and belittle her and humiliate her and I do believe, sadly, Marion is is dead. But even in her death, when she's not here to defend herself, it stands out for a number of reasons that he does that. It also runs, not forgetting, from 1968. So this whole story about them meeting and all of that, like we're talking however many years, we're talking 60 years, 40 years, 50 years. Of it. And having brought in that initial meeting in 1968, well, it was originally actually 1964, but then when he read the information, I think he tended to have slid that up another four years in order for it to match when Marion was overseas. But yeah, I find that very interesting that he he did sort of put that in there, that he'd known her, you know, knew her way back when. What did he do that for? Yes. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there are indicators that he's gone through, not just The Lady Vanishes or researching Marion, but obviously all the case files, which he gets access to. So he can manufacture his account to match certain things that are said. 
and he can give an account. But for me, what stands out is if he distances himself from Marion and said, well, they only had sex three times. How does he know all these things that he offers up later about her? So one of the things that, as well as the sexual promiscuity that stood out to me, and it's a, on point 11 for me, is that Rick Bloom, when giving evidence, he's asked about what name he's given at birth. And he answered that he couldn't remember what name he was given at birth because it was 80 years ago. But conversely, he remembered his flight to Japan and Hotel Narita. And he also said that he read in a newspaper that Queensland police believed that Marion had joined cult society. And I found that fascinating to say cult society. And this is when he's being questioned about his changing of his story. And he's not even asked about that, but he offers that up. So it's such a specific detail, but of course, cult society with the name change and so on, he's trying to create a picture of Marion being, and he actually said when he offered up the cult that he'd read in the newspaper, that she was strange. She was a strange person. So again, for me, it's more devaluing, more belittling. And at at 12, my point that I make is that he goes from saying that he doesn't know Marion to having a relationship with Marion to then just having sex with her, but then to knowing her plans on her trip of a lifetime and to buy a school in England and knowing nothing about her coming back to Australia to her then coming back to Australia and wanting to separate from her family. And that's what he offers up in the 2023 account. So he seems to know a lot for someone who's just saying that he had sex with her three times. But the postcard, the Jane Austen postcard, where she talks about the school and how much it costs, for me, it's very interesting to hear him reference Marion wanting to buy a school. That's a very particular detail of her on the postcard, right? Yes, and that that is very significant because he mentioned that in his very first interview. So the police visited him at his home. The next day he made an appointment to go in and see them at Ballina Police Station in New South Wales. So he would have just had that overnight period to sort of, he knew the name, to be able to potentially research or look into things. So the fact that he has been so specific in mentioning the purchase of the school within was about 14 hours I worked out. That to me, it's a bit of a red flag waving that there is something significant around that suggestion or story because he does say it multiple times with this pilot, with this man that came to pick up the boxes. He's sort of rolled into that as well. Yes, well, that is significant. The purchase of school is very, very significant. And I believe there's veracity there. If that's his first account, there's veracity there. And that may well have been the lure. That may may well have been the, the carrot, I believe, being dangled. And therefore, he is talking from veracity. But for Marion to write that on a postcard, it's matched and corroborated. So that really stood out to me. Then at point 13... Marion, in terms of victimology, was the type of person that she that he would target. And that's when we map it across, looking at the profile of Monique, Jeanette, Janet, Ghislaine, Andre, Charlotte, and no doubt others. You know, I do believe, Joni, I'm sure you do too, that there are other women. And that's why appealing to people, right, in Luxembourg and in Belgium and Australia is important. But for me, victimology is 
very key along with the timeline. And I've always said this is a victimology and timeline case and, and behaviour once you start to map it across. Yep, definitely. I agree with that. Point 14 relates to your incredible sleuthing of Rick Bloom's well-written advert in Le Courant Australien in 1994, stating that he was 47 years old and that he was morally aligned as a man who was seeking an unattached woman. And he used the name M.F. Remacal. A lot of that, well, it's so significant because it's such an unusual name. We've talked about that. And I think, what is it, only 100 people have that last name? Yes. And mostly in Luxembourg. So mostly in Luxembourg. So that's significant. So some of these are weighted as more significant. And that's one of them because it tracks back to Rick Bloom. Well, at 15, Marion Barter secretly changed her name to Florabelle and Natalia Marion Remical before she left. So what are the chances of her randomly selecting that name? There basically is, is zero chance because there wasn't the internet where she could target a so-called name in one of the smallest countries in the world. I mean, Luxembourg is one of the smallest countries in the world. And then she cho chose one of the most rarest names in the world. And if you consider too that the real Fernand Ramacal's name was matched her those initials directly to what Marion called herself. So what was that about? Interesting. Yeah. That can't be coincidence. Yeah. I don't believe it's coincidence, particularly, you know, you mentioning no internet. So it reduces, you know, it's like one chance in a billion. It's just, it's unlikely. I mean, it's fanciful, but the name she selected as well, it's not a name that you would use if you intended to go missing. I mean, if you intended to disappear yourself, it's just not a name that you would go for Jane Smith, right? You'd go for something that is just so common but to go for something so specific that tracks back to Remacau, you know, 16, as we know, the real MF Remacau was from Luxembourg, as you said. So now we've got a name and we've got Luxembourg. You've got two things that hang together. And that was his age and that was his ID. And then we've got the third thing, which was Rick Bloom having a relationship with his ex-wife, Monique, and him having a sweet spot for her. So we have the fourth thing just around the fourth significant part to that. And that's a very significant set of circumstances in and of themselves that tie Marion to him and to them, to Monique. Spot on, yeah. So 17 is that Rick Bloom denied using MF Remacor, the name, initially. And he denied having the Queensland driving licence when questioned by the police. And then he admitted to it. But the initial line of question was he denied it, so he lied again. And again, you only lie. I mean, people lie for lots of different reasons, but in this situation, you lie to create distance. He doesn't want to be attached to it. Why? It's a very obvious thing to say, but I have to keep bringing the blinding glimpse of the obvious. I call them the BGOs in, because when you're going through the detail, like I said, there are some things more, more significant than others, and the lies are incredibly significant to create distance. We know at 18 that Marion used the name Remical and she ticked the box on her passenger card coming back into Australia that she was married and a housewife in Luxembourg. So again, you've got more significant circumstantial evidence attached to Remical and attached to Luxembourg and Marion and Rick Blum. 
which I don't believe is random. So that's 18 and 19 that go together. And 20 is about timeline again of the matching of the timeline of Marion leaving Australia just days after Rick Bloom left Australia for Europe. They're just days apart. Sally calls them coincidences, but for me, these are not coincidences, particularly when we think about timeline where you've got behaviour mapping across and people moving to the other side of the world. If they'd gone to different places, so that would be very curious. But at 21, we know that Mariam wrote to Sally on the Hotel Nico Narita, the Japan Hotel letterhead, and we talked about that. Well, Rick Blum disclosed when he gave his evidence that he stayed at that hotel in Japan and Diane also corroborated him flying also in her evidence to Japan and that he flew by a different airline. But Hotel Nico, the note paper, I still believe why Marion used that letterhead to write to Sally is because it was significant. Out of all the pieces of paper and notepads and cards she could have written on, she chose that. It meant something to her. What did it mean to her? That's an interesting point. You choose, Marion th- was very thoughtful and that's why when we were talking about the postcards when she was in the UK, Jane Austen's house and Brighton, the Sally's shop and the cats, everything was very thoughtful and intentional. And that's why I believe that even the note paper, the letterhead, that's a clue because it's significant. You know, when you go to different places, you go into card shops, you go into, you make the effort, don't you? But she chooses that. And I think it's because something happened in Japan. And I believe they most likely got married. And it's some way for her to communicate to Sally that this is something significant. It bonds them and binds them by her just using that paper, potentially in Marion's head. You know, it's my opinion that people do things intentionally, particularly around when they're on the other side of the world. And that she, again, it's it's another point related to this, that she stayed in contact. She didn't just disappear. She stayed connected, but doing very specific, thoughtful letters and postcards to people. Even though we might think that in some of the postcards she wrote, they were quite general. You know, it was almost like she's telling, but she's not feeling. And she's not really saying what's going on. You know, that's the sense I got from them. Yes, squirrels and berries and hanging baskets and lots of descriptive stuff. Yeah, and that that to me, without really saying anything, because she's guarding a secret, and that secret, I believe, is about Rick Bloom and most likely, I mean, you'll find out when you go to Japan, but I'd be very surprised if you don't discover that they got married there and that's the connection. At 22, I've got, and we talked about this too, Marion saying in, a, in that letter that she spent time in the East and that she had too much luggage. And you also mentioned that when she applied for the passport, she had referenced Japan. So we've got things that now corroborate. She's not transiting through. She spent time there and that she made a mistake with all that luggage and she won't do that again. That's significant. Yes, yes. It was not just simply a transit visit. Yeah, well, you don't worry about your luggage. It just changes. Or, or maybe you, you are at the airport, but you don't tend to have to worry if you've got a connecting flight. And um, we talked about that timeline. And at 23, I've got Marion landing in, in London and the fact she goes to Tunbridge Wells. I mean, for me, that's just so striking. You know, anyone who I talk to about this case and I say, well, Marion planned a trip of a lifetime. And the first place she goes to London, she goes to Tunbridge Wells. And everyone always says, 
where's that? I've never heard of it. And I mean, non-UK people, right? Where is that? What am I missing? What is this place? And then I explain and they're like, never heard of it. It's just not a place that you would pick as your first destination on a trip of a lifetime. And therefore, it's immediately I was thinking, well, why? And then I hear in the evidence, you know, the, the light bulb pings when I hear, well, Burwash was where Rick Bloom and Diane lived in the 80s. And then I Google it and I see, well, what's the travel distance by car? And it's 20 minutes. And then he talks about Tunbridge Wells and his evidence. And then I start to think, well, it's an odd place. Are they there together? And then that would make sense why the postcard talking about buying a school. It's top of mind for him when he's because he remembers those things. But I do believe that they're together there. It's just not a place that you would naturally put a pin in the map and say, that's where I'm going to go on my first, you know, from London, put my luggage in and then go down to the Royal Borough of Tunbridge Wells, even though it's a beautiful place. Especially to Laura, just with the Tunbridge Wells, in his evidence, he actually stated that he never went to Tunbridge Wells when he was living in Burwash. He just went to the outskirts to go to the hospital for his daughter. So he did kind of skirt around the issue. That was their most major, closest town. Um, His wife stated that within her evidence too. You know, that, that was the closest town, major big town for them. So why is he actually denying going there? And then he goes off on this tangent about because of the mad cow disease in the UK, he used to bring all of their food back from France. So he's basically saying he purchased all the food for the family. He purchased the clothing for the children. He was the one going out and about and doing all the shopping and the purchasing. So why is it that he is not admitting to being anywhere near Tunbridge Wells as his closest major town? And that to me, again, is a giveaway of the distancing, of the reneging, of the stepping back of any kind of connection with anything to do with Marion Barter and her story. I think it's just another tick for that. Absolutely. And in fact, I had people email me, one who was in Australia, a a man who messaged me and a number of other people who said, I used to live in Tunbridge Wells or Burwash. And you're absolutely right, Laura. That's the nearest town. That's exactly where you go to. So the distancing was, again, striking that mentioning the hospital and, you know, he goes to great lengths to create that distance. Why? Because it's significant. Yeah, he needs to create distance. If if you're innocent, you don't need to create that distance. You just free recall and, and you tell the story. But the other point associated with that was when he, one of the first thing he leaks out was about Rudyard Kipling, which again, you know, the house where Rudyard Kipling died was close to Burwash. So he references that. So what he's putting everyone on notice of is that he's well-read is a lit- literary man. And of course, we know that Marion is too. We know that the Jane Austen. So again, things start to tie in. And you might think it's quite tenuous, but actually it's significant because it's one of the things he wanted to share. It really had no relevance. He shares a lot of stuff that has no relevance, but when you actually understand the case, you realise what relevance it does have. You know, like he's not asked about Marion and cult society, but he offers up I remember reading in the paper that Queensland police thought that Marion had joined a cult. Just comes out of left field, but it's intentioned. It's for a reason. 
Yes, he's constantly referencing things like that. And I guess my personal view is sometimes when sitting in the court, I almost wish that, not a criticism, but I wish that counsel assisting had have not cut him off because they saw that as sort of insignificant and him just literally rambling on to the, you know, diverting, wasting time. Whereas I thought there were some real gems within some of the stuff that he did say with his so-called ramblings. There's still a lot to discover there within his testimony in itself, for sure. Yes. And obviously they're concerned about court time because he did talk a lot, right? And he obfuscates a lot. So he yeah. that's part of the strategy and the tactics. And a lot of perpetrators, a lot of cases I've worked on, that is a, a deliberate strategy. But within that, there are normally kernels of things you want to hear about. So you're right, Joni. In fact, one of the strategies I employ is to let them talk because you want them to. And then you start to, you know, pull out these nuggets. And if you're assessing and analysing the detail, you'll find some real, you know, gems in there. But of course, they're concerned about court mm. time um, and no doubt the cost. Yeah. But that's not to say anybody who future investigates him, that's a, a, a strategy that they should be employing and actually going back through all the evidence. I'm jumping in here to wrap the episode and yes, you will hear my circumstantial evidence points in two parts, namely because it's a lot of information to take in and to process, and the devil really is in the detail. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood.